So let's talk as a leadership team about the issue of dominance, how we come across individually and collectively, and asking other people who are not part of the dominant culture to talk about, tell me what the environment is like for you and what you'd like to see us do differently. So if you were to unpack that model one factor at a time and be and have the courage to to encourage conversation about it, then you will begin to uh, create an, a more inclusive environment. Because for me, the bottom line is inclusion matters. And if we're not willing to ask ourselves, what do I mean by that? And how do I unpack it? And do you agree with me that inclusion matters? Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. We're back here for episode number 100, Magic 100, and our very special guest is Dr. Helen Turnbull. And the title today is The Unchallenged Brain is Not Worth Trusting, The Role of Unconscious Bias in Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Yes, we're back to this topic again. It's such a vital one today in our business, personal, community, and global worlds. Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. And Dr. Helen Turnbull is an expert on unconscious bias. She's going to talk a lot today about something she calls her inclusion complexity model which is about three immutable forces, things that don't really change, but we need to be aware of, and four permeable forces, things that can change over time and that are adjusting constantly. It's going to be a rich, robust, and sometimes challenging conversation, but it's one that needs to be had more and more today. So strap yourself in for a deep dive into unconscious bias. Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. So I am intrigued today. That's my word for today is intrigued by our guest and our topic. It's one that really isn't going on in the world much right now. It's diversity, equity, inclusion. So I'm I'm so excited that we have Dr. Helen Turnbull with us. She is a CSP, and many of you don't know what that is, but that means she is a certified speaking professional with the National Speakers Association, also a global speaking fellow. You're going to hear more of her story and she is a recognized recognized around the world as a thought leader on global inclusion and diversity, the topic of our times. She's done extensive research in this area, especially on unconscious bias, which is such a critical part of this discussion. And part of her research has led her to what became a TED Talk and also a book called The Illusion of Inclusion. And she's identified, she calls it the inclusion complexity model. It's identified three, it's identified three immutable forces and four permeable forces that play a key role in inclusion. And she knows what it takes to create an inclusive work environment. And I know so many people want to get there, but let's face it, there's lots of hurdles and we're going to start chipping away at some of those hurdles today. So welcome Dr. Helen. Yes, great, great to have you here. So, uh, Dr. Helen, give us a little bit of your story that gets us here today. Gosh, um, in a nutshell, uh, your listeners will quickly pick up that I'm from Scotland. And uh, <laughs> I came here in 1980. I live in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. And I, I worked for BBC Television in HR. And I didn't love HR either over there or over here. So I went into training and development and from there began to look at the issues of um, inequities in team building. And that took me to the issues of race, gender, sexual orientation. Uh, and before I knew it, it was a niche market for me. So, Well, that's fascinating. And uh, so I want to dig in a little deeper. So you mentioned 1980. So you've clearly been in this work for number of decades. Yes. Can you talk about how this work has changed 
or maybe not changed over that time? That's a, a great question, Jeff, because it has changed. And at the same time, I think we've come full circle to where I started. So I actually started the work in 1985 hmm. when, I, when I formed my own business. And at that time, we were very focused uh, on the issue of race. And we used to run workshops that were really looking at the relationship predominantly of black, white, and then other social identity groups, Asian, Latinx, as they're referred to today. And we moved away from that um, over the years. I can't really tell you when it happened, but it became more trendy to talk about unconscious bias, to talk about inclusion, to make diversity sound like it was all issues and not just race or gender. Uh, and so, uh, of course, as you referenced in your introduction, I believe that we've moved full circle back to looking at race for a lot of reasons, including the incident, you know, with George Floyd last year and the incident a couple of days ago in, in Atlanta. Uh, so that there is an urgent need for us to lean into this conversation, not just on race, but on gender, sexual orientation. We have not made the progress that we'd like to believe that well-intentioned people would like to believe we've made. Now, when you say that everybody came back to let's let's lump everything into one big bucket, did that do a disservice to each of those those groups? Um, you know, I don't know that it did at the time. I think people wanted another way of talking about it and okay. wanted to add in the uh, the dynamics of unconscious bias and what what could inclusion look like. What I say to my clients is. We hire for diversity and we manage for similarity. And, and so if we bring in diverse people, you as a leader, you can look around your organization and you can see diversity and you can tell yourself, well, I don't have to do any work. Look, you know, all my employees are diverse, quote unquote. But you, if you're managing for similarity, you're not allowing people to bring their best selves to work. And so I think as we shifted the conversation, uh, we began to look at what does inclusion look like? So you can have diverse people, but if you don't have an inclusive workplace, then you're not really getting the best out of people. So I don't right. think it took anything away. However, I will say that what's happening in the country today, it, it, there's an urgent need for us to, to come back and really look at the dynamics of race. So I'd love to ask you a couple more questions about this circle, this cycle. You said back in the mid-80s, a lot of focus on this topic was around race. And that makes sense to me because I think given that time, I mean, I was working at the time, so I, I get that. And then we started to expand and look at all sorts of differences. And now you're saying we've kind of come back that race tends to be the focus. And I agree it has, and I get why. But I think the key thing I heard in there is we've not come as far as we think we have. And to me, that's like an unconscious bias on top of an unconscious bias. This, I've got these unconscious biases, but I think I don't. <laughs> or I've, I've, they're pretty minimal now. And that's, that's like the worst thing. Yes. It's worse than having them. If you have unconscious biases and say, I need to pay attention, that's one thing. But to say I don't have them when I have them, Oh, my God, that's really, I mean, frankly, to me, it's dangerous. Yeah, everyone has unconscious biases, and they don't go away. I mean, that's the piece that, that I've constantly said to clients is you, your unconscious biases kind of live at the back of your neck. You don't see them. You don't know they're there. You don't know you're making decisions out of them. But once you become aware, they move to the edge of your shoulder. Now you can see them in your peripheral vision, mm. but you still have to catch them. You still have to make a decision based on, am I going to act this out or am I going to think, uh, uh, go away? You know, I, I, I need to, um, I, I need to really look at my unconscious biases. In my TED talk, I talk about my, the bias I discovered of being, um, wary of female airline pilots and almost got off the plane that night and, and oh. thought that I had dealt with that bias, got in touch with it, realized a competent airline pilot for me is tall, white, with silver-gray hair, looks like he's <laughs> ex-military, obviously male. Now, he could fly the plane. I wasn't convinced that she should. And, of course, I you know, had to laugh at myself in a sense because 
Ellen, you're a diversity consultant. <laughs> not meant to think like that. But 15 years later, in a, on a flight from Canberra to Sydney, um, a female voice comes over the intercom and says, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Qantas. We will be arriving in Sydney in about 30 minutes. It's a beautiful day for flying. And I sat there thinking, wait a minute, there's a woman flying this plane. And I forgot to check. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I got in touch with the fact that that bias was still living somewhere in my hard drive. These wow. are mental models or mind viruses. They don't actually go away. So our unconscious biases are there to stay. We just have to become aware of them. Hmm. I love. I really like that visual. Yeah, absolutely. Of the the it's in the peripheral vision, and I mm -hmm. love the phrase you said because I've, I've said things like it. I have to catch it. Mm -hmm. I have to catch it in my behavior and all that. And yeah, it's kind of like blind spots, which is another way to describe unconscious yeah. biases. When people say I'm very aware of my blind spots, I just go. Do you even understand what you just said? <laughs> right. Like literally what you just said can't be true. That's right. If, That's if right. it is true, it's not a blind spot anymore. <laughs> so for clarity for our listeners, can you describe a little bit more what exactly unconscious bias is? Well, yes, they're small. They're almost like micro inequities or microaggressions that have been programmed into us. And we tend to perpetrate them on people of difference. And so my unconscious biases make me instantly see that you're a perfect fit for this job. You look like the part. Oh. And I'm like, what are you actually telling yourself? Or I don't think you'll fit in in this organization. And so the, the, they're very fast and uh, they're, they're microaggressions, micro inequities hmm. that are they're really programmed into us in ways that we don't realize are there. And we're convinced that we don't do it. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I see is, uh, what if it's true uh, that, you know, you believe as a well-intentioned person that you behave inclusively, but what if you really don't? I mean, what if it's true that your brain is hardwired for selfishness and similarity and not for diversity and inclusion? Yeah. And that's where in that gap in the sentence I just said is unconscious bias. So I believe I'm being fair and equitable, but what's happening is my brain is programmed to allow me to let in people that I have an affinity with and keep out people that are different. Mm. Okay, great. Thank you. In, it, it's because there's something about you in your value system. I said, okay, you and I go to the same church or the same bowling league. You may be different from me. You're male and female or, or you're white and black. Um, I'll let you in because we share the same values or the same interests. Mm. Yeah. I really love the question you just threw out there. It's been on my mind most of the last week or so, this idea of, or what I heard, in it, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> like that, just that simple question. If I say, I don't think I have these unconscious biases. I think I see treat everyone the same. That's okay. That's nice. But what if you're wrong? If you're right, great. Everything's good. But if you're wrong, if there's anything you're missing, then you're going to have impact that are harmful, hurtful, yep. uh, anything but inclusive. And I, I use that with myself a lot and say, here's my belief system, but what if I'm wrong? Because then I can say, well, I'm going to open myself to the possibility I'm wrong and work from there versus assuming I'm right. Yeah. And, right. I, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Socrates, the, uh, um, the unchallenged life is not worth living. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, I leave my audience often with the statement from me, the unchallenged brain is not worth trusting. <laughs> oh, my God. You have to say that again. That is so good. Yes. That could be the title of this. <laughs> yeah. The unchallenged brain is not worth trusting. So and, and, and so really what I'm saying, obviously, is we all socially construct stories in our head. And if you're not asking yourself, but what if I'm wrong? What if it's true that that person actually likes me? And I'm telling myself a story that they don't. What if I'm wrong? Uh, so I think we have to challenge our own thought process. All right, Jeff. So we just had a, a nuclear wisdom bomb. We haven't had one of those in a while. So yeah, that was a nuclear <laughs> wisdom bomb. Yes. <laughs> so one thing I'd like to talk about, it came up in a discussion I had last night, is about how important is it, do you believe, to fundamentally change 
things, and I'm going to give you the specific example. I was talking to a group here in Tampa uh, that's it's a leadership organization, and they they I know they're working really hard to become more diverse, more inclusive. I, I know they're committed to that. In fact, the person I talked to leads it. And my opinion is they got a great person for that. But what I heard them say is they were saying, well, we're really intentional about it. And I said, well, here's my question. Are you intentional once people come to the door to apply mm-hmm. so that you're applying that intentionality to the pool that shows up? Or are you being intentional in changing who's coming to the door? Which to me, because a lot of times companies will say, we're, we're, we're picking the best people, which I think is a huge blind spot. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, well, this is all that came here. But I think we've got to go further upstream if we're going to change things. Yeah, if you're recruiting your from thoughts schools, choose a you know, historically black college or an all-women's college or you know, whatever it is so that you have you know where where part of your candidate pool is coming from. Yes, absolutely. Well, I totally agree with both of you on that. That you have to um, you have to look first of all is checking your own mind viruses. Who are we currently recruiting from? So the people that come to the door, where are we reaching out to? And if that's limited, then we have to cast the net a little bit wider. Go to the black colleges or to the women's colleges, um, and don't tell yourself, well, you know. In this industry, women are just not interested uh, because we've all kinds of clever ways of saying, yeah, I know we need diversity, but no, nobody wants to come here. Uh, so we have to work harder on that. But, but it's more than that. It goes back to me saying we hire for diversity and manage for similarity because you can hire people, you can cast the net, bring in more diverse people and have a revolving door because mm. people come in and the environment's not conducive. And yeah. they think, okay, I'm out of here. Uh, so the work, the work really uh, begins at the recruitment process, but it doesn't end when they come in the door. The, the journey of working together has just begun when they enter. That's a great point. Now, when you engage with an organization, are you looking at it through all levels? Or are you dealing with it specifically at a leadership management level to start with? Um, ultimately, everybody needs to treat everyone else with respect. And a lot of people don't know, you know, certainly back to the unconscious biases and other things. So how do you get started in an engagement like that? So I, I work at, at different levels, mostly with the leadership, not just the C-suite, but different levels of leadership okay. down through the organization. Um, I, I believe that companies often uh, work the vertical axis. Um, so they start at the top and move down. And I will quite often work with the HR team, the diversity mm-hmm. council, the senior leadership, the next level of leadership, the supervisors, uh, doing either keynotes, workshops, and I have three assessment tools that I use that I develop myself. And at the same time, I believe it's really important for companies to recognize they also have to manage the horizontal axis so that, that men are diverse too. So when we say we're working on gender, mm-hmm. we can't just say, well, men do this and women do that, or men feel this and women feel that. It, because men are diverse too. I mean, there's straight men, there's gay men, there's younger men, older men, white men, men of color, etc. Men with hair. Men, men with hair and men without, <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, men with feelings about that, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, we have to pay attention to that. So, so I work at all levels of the organization. But mostly I'm hired in by HR or by the diversity people to, to work with the leadership team. That's where I start. Okay. So an interesting question. I guess this goes to the whole need to maybe blow everything up, and I do not mean literally. <laughs> and I find this, this to me is a big blind spot. Recently where I live, they came out with the business journal, the 100 most powerful people. Mm. And so my very conscious bias is, I said, I'm just going to go look at this because I want to see how diverse it is, at least visually. A lot of things that aren't visual, I get it. It was exactly what you would expect. It was not very diverse. In fact, they had a little article about that. They said, you know, we recognize and we really want to get better at that. And I thought, 
I didn't write a letter. I was going to write a letter to the editor saying, okay, first of all, the only way you're going to create diversity in your outcome is to change your definition of power Hmm. because your definition itself is biased. And the definition itself will only put people on here who have been able to elevate because of the conditions that exist that favor and oppress. If you don't change the definition, this that's not going to look any different for 40 years, first of all. And second of all, do you even realize what you're saying? You're calling it the most powerful people when the, the heart and soul of our issues around diversity is a power differential that's getting used often unconsciously and sometimes consciously, but you're still using a phrase that's part of the oppression that has created the issue. Like I'm thinking, sometimes I think, did no one else notice this? Yeah. That's right. I think there's so many fundamental shifts that have to happen for us to start to really make progress on diversity inclusion. Yes, I I understand. I think, too, that um, for me, when I see these, you know, top 10 most powerful women or 100 most powerful people, I think, says who? Uh, And uh, (laughs) based on what measurement, you know, what are we we measuring against? What they're earning, what industries they're in, or who they knew? Did they know the editor of the journal that's being published? (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) And does the journal editor have a diverse network? Right, exactly. So I am a little bit skeptical of that. But obviously, the obvious thing that you're saying, Jeff, is that if I look and see only white people, then I know that that organization doesn't get the the, the message they're sending about diversity. And it's important to look at that. But again, for me, um, inclusion and diversity are extremely complex. They're Mm. not as simple as just putting the, 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 the right person in place. So how do you lay that out in your book? You, you said that you have a model that you use in, in your book. What does that look like? Yes. Oh, thank you. I've got um, a, a, the model is called the inclusion complexity model, but okay. it really looks at what I call three immutable forces and four permeable forces. And what I mean by that is there are three issues that no matter how much we know about them are never going to go away. Mm. The first one being dominance there's always going to be a dominant culture. Uh, the, the issue that might change and is changing over the years is who's dominant. And if you think about that in, in relationships with you or your significant other, your partner, um, somebody's in charge of where we go for dinner. Somebody's in charge of what decisions we make about the kids or the dog or whatever. And sometimes in relationships, that shifts. So the, the, the dominance of the relationship can move over the years. And that's true with the demographics, not just in the U.S., but in the world at large, it is that dominance is always going to be there. And, and, of course, globally right now, despite the fact that people of color are demographically larger numbers than white people, white people have been dominant for a very long time in many places. And um, so, so we have to understand dominance. And I, I used to say to to leaders that if I can give you no more compelling reason to pay attention to this topic, it is this, is that the issue of dominance will change. And we will be coming back as diversity consultants running workshops for white men who will be the minority and figuring out how to get you to feel included again. And, uh, and, you know, when I started saying that in 1985 or so, after the Hudson Institute report in 1980, I think people either stared at me and thought, this woman's nuts, <laughs> or, or they thought, you know, you know what, that's kind of too, too hard for me to take that in. But it's true. So dominance is never going to go away. And the question is, as a leader, how do I manage my privilege, power, and difference? What responsibility do I have to recognize when you're the leader and you, and you don't smile at a meeting, every single person in that meeting is watching your face and thinking, uh-oh, what upset them? Because mm. we're watching our leaders and we're reading into what they're doing. So as a leader, you have a responsibility to say, how am I coming across? How am I impacting people? Am I really interested in hearing your voice or not? So the first issue of, of the model is dominance. The second and one, And you ahead. can't depend on what you think. You do have to ask other people. Right, right. 
you do have to be interested. In <laughs> right. Yes. Good point. <laughs> rest of no, your that's, a, that's a great one because as Craig knows the story, one thing that took me a while to be willing to hear, but it's helped immeasurably is I'm a very large person in size. I'm six foot four. Very, I'm physically imposing. And I had a lot of people over the years give me feedback. They kept saying, you're really serious. You're intense. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have projected onto me that I am an angry person, that I, I just, and I'm like, wow, that's not me. That's not who I am. But I went, yes, it is. That's how they're seeing me. So I have to remember to be pay attention to those the power I have from those projections. For me, what it means is I need to just remember to smile more. Right. Yeah, and because not be less of you. Not be less of me, but just say, okay, because otherwise I could be arrogant and say, well, that's just who I am. And then everybody's right. afraid to talk to me. Yep. I, don't, I can't avoid the projections, but I can minimize them and the impact they have. Right. right. Absolutely, because it's not just how I see myself. It's how other people are making up a story about me. I have a black male colleague who's over six foot, and he used to say that he sits down when he yeah. talks to people, particularly women, because he doesn't want to be seen as towering over them because yeah. of the interpretation of, of, you know, you look angry or you're intimidating. So, so I think height and weight, et cetera, are factors. Yeah, I've always done that with children. But, yeah, with, with people, I'll find myself, you know, it, it, just trying to adjust and, and be aware of that. But it's, um, we, we don't always know <laughs> Well, and some of them are little things, right? Because I, I'm a tall person and I tend to get very close to people yeah. because I like the connection. There's an right. intimacy to it. But where I learned it was I met a former NBA basketball player <laughs> at NSA. At NSA, he's seven foot four. Wow. And I was doing that with him and he was comfortable with the space. And I went, my neck literally hurts. Oh, uh, yeah. And then I said, so when I talk to others, I'm literally putting them in pain wow. to interact with me. So now I pay attention. And this is not about diversity and inclusion, but it's about blind spots and awareness and, and power. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing I, I love telling leaders about. Look, this is about power. There are so many power differentials. And if you don't pay attention yeah. to them, just because you don't believe you have power doesn't mean you don't have it. And I think it's interesting, Dr. Helen, when you were talking about the, the leader in the meeting who's not smiling, everybody's saying, what happened? You know, versus, you know, that's just the way the person normally looks. That's right. And if you add the layers of complexity to that of um, you might be saying, Jeff's not smiling, what's going on? Whereas as a woman, I'm saying to myself, uh-oh. So I add another layer of complexity to the story. Jeff Jeff doesn't like women or he doesn't like me. And if I'm a black woman, I then add that layer of complexity. So is Jeff being racist when he does that? He's not comfortable with black women. And so that is the issue of social identity, is that when we have the the lived experience of these differences, uh, we add it to the story when, when we feel uncomfortable. It's like, I will interpret your ignoring me through many different filters. So what's interesting about you saying that is I'm, I'm going through a course right now on all of this. Mm-hmm. And we read an article and the article was titled the, the one word that could get you killed. Mm-hmm. And I've asked about half a dozen women that question in the last week and every one of them got it right. And not one man did. Do you know what the word is? No. You just, that is it. That's the word. That's the word. Really? Wow. How, how, and the thing is, and then last night someone shared that with me. A woman was saying, yeah, that's interesting because typically men's fear is fear of rejection by a woman. But the woman's fear is of being hurt Mm. or killed. And there there are women who have been killed because they said no to men. There have women who have been women who have been verbally abused because they said no. Yeah, and I, I just read that, and I, I never saw that because it wasn't my experience. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. You took me to a lot of places there, Jeff, because <laughs> I've been physically and um, verbally abused over the mm. years, 
and uh, it doesn't leave your body, you know. So wow. uh, I understand completely what you're saying. And, and I, I think that the piece that's relatable in the workplace around that is it's not well understood, is that if I have a history of abuse, and men can get abused too, so this is not unique just to women, but, but a, a lot of women have that story in, in their past. Yeah. It can trigger you when, when you've got a manager or leader who is, you know, perceived to be tough or speaks to you in a way that doesn't feel appropriate. And it, it's not just the, the one-on-one reaction, it's a trigger. Uh, that, so there's a lot of complexity. And, you know, if I go back to the, the three immutable forces, right. the second one is unconscious bias, which we talked about earlier, so I mm-hmm. won't go into great detail there. It's really important to understand that our unconscious biases are impacting the quality of our day-to-day decision-making. Um, they're impacting who we let in and who we don't want to have on our team, et cetera. Right. And the, the third one is what I call degrees of difference. And uh, mm. that goes back to what we talked about earlier. Are we, are we really coming back full circle to race to the exclusion of other issues? And the answer to that is no, because you can't leave out the other issues. We have to talk about ageism and sexism and, and homophobia and all of these other differences, in part because for every one of us, some of them live in my body. I mean, I'm white. I'm a woman. I'm heterosexual, I'm a baby boomer, and I'm Christian. These are five issues that matter to me, but they don't all matter to me every day all at the same time. I I don't leap out of bed in the morning and think, wow, I'm still white today. Uh, (laughs) I don't really have to think about that. But someone of color might actually wake up every day thinking that. Exactly, because that's the privilege part. Wow, I don't have to think about it. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last 20 years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. Welcome back. It's interesting when you said degrees of difference. Um, can you say a little more about it? Because when you said it, something hit me from a book I'm reading right now or listening to called Cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wonderful. The premise of Cast is that racism is really not the outcome. The real issue is casteism that has now been broken up based upon race. Race was used that way. And the really interesting example, they said, if you took the full spectrum of color, from the darkest person mm-hmm. to the whitest person, <clears throat> there's an obvious difference. But when you get to the exact middle, you probably couldn't even tell the difference. Mm. The two that were the next degree, mm-hmm. it would be indiscernible. And that, I guess that flashed in my head when you said degrees of difference, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. Can you speak to that a little well, more? It probably is part of what I'm talking about. Uh, and at the same time, I'm also saying that uh, we, it's like a, a normal distribution curve, that there are people on one end of the, of, if you look at gender, for example, there are women who always think about the issues of gender. And there are women who say, no, you know what, that doesn't matter to me. I just want to be treated equally, same as everybody else. Um, and then there's people in the middle who, yeah, they think about it now and again. And at the same time, each one of these people on that continuum have their own intersectionality. Some of them are gay, some of them are, are, are lesbian, some of them are um, Christian, some are Muslim. And so the social identity is complex on the degrees of difference, which causes us, and, and here's where we go with it, which is not helpful. So what, what people say in that is, I just want to be treated as an individual. 
And I'm like, okay, so here, this is a paradox of, of inclusion, is you are an individual with your own unique story and your own lived experience. And at the same time, you are uniquely different from every other individual that we've just talked about. And at the same time, you are different from other people because of your social identity. So if you are a white male who's gay, you are in a group of other white men who are gay that white heterosexual men are not part of. And, and so there's three parts to that paradox. Yes, we're all individuals. Yes, we're all uniquely different. And yes, we're like some people more than others. Could you talk a little bit more? Because we've not had a lot of conversation here about intersectionality. And I think it's so vital to, for people to understand that because without it, it, I think without it, it's a lot of times that's how we start to pretend that there aren't issues of diversity and inclusion because we don't get at the intersectionality. Could explain more what that is and how that shows up. Right, so I, I see intersectionality in two ways. Uh, one at the individual level is that I am more than just the sum of my parts in a sense that if I start to look at the intersectionalities for me, uh, I have a lot of privilege because I'm white. Um, I also have a lot of privilege because of my accent over here. Yeah. Privilege, privilege I lose when I go back home. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have a lot of um, issues, uh, particularly today being an older woman because I'm a baby boomer. And so baby boomers are losing privilege because we're no longer the dominant culture. And so it's the intersectionality of all these different parts of me. And, and based on the oppression, which parts of, the, of me am I most aware of? And you, you talk to it, Craig, is if you're a black woman, you're much more likely to be aware of your race and your color than you are of your, um, of your gender, perhaps. It's not that you don't know it. It's just that the intersectionality issues are, I believe that they're hierarchical. And that race is definitely up there. Sexual orientation is up there. The issue of ageism, not so much. Mm. The issue of being uh, not able-bodied is up there, but it's not as threatening to people to talk about as race and sexual orientation are. And And the other way I see intersectionality, Jeff, is I see it group to group because I believe that there's conversations that we need to have with each other across the group and within the group. So when you talk about the color line, for example, within the black community, there are light-skinned people and there are dark-skinned people. And there are feelings, just like you were laughing about hair before, there are feelings that people have about light-skinned people Mm -hmm. in their community and dark-skinned. And if you were to talk to each of them, they're having a very different lived experience based on skin color privilege or lack of skin color privilege. So yeah, within that group, right? Exactly. Within yeah. that same group. And then we talk, if you take it across groups, and we rarely do this, and I thought about this yesterday when this hideous situation in Atlanta blew up, and I thought there are times when the black community doesn't really talk to the Asian community. I'm not talking individuals now. I'm talking at group levels. And I thought, you know, Here's a, an opportunity for, for example, the black community to step up and say, we support our brothers and sisters of Asian descent. Here's an opportunity for white people to step up, lean in and say, we support our brothers and sisters of Asian descent, just like most of us did when George Floyd happened. So there's an intersectionality conversation for me between groups and within groups and within each of us as individuals. I will throw this out there. I, I agree with you. The the ageism, I think, is changing. And I, I'm wondering if there will actually be a change in the law because today I don't think we're seeing the same impact as 20 years ago with age of 40 being that point. Yeah. I think it's in a good way because we have, you know, uh, living longer. But the interesting thing was, this is for listeners and anybody that's interested, a few weeks ago in this course we were talking about ableism. And we watched a video. It's actually a documentary, and I think it's actually called Crip Camp, as in hmm. cripples. Uh, and it was filmed back in the 70s, and it's fascinating. It's really about how the laws came into being for, to get access 
mm-hmm. and how the laws were created and not followed and and how there was that differentiation within the group and and i i have a new appreciation and a new way to look at people who are differently able and how i might interact with them because of that documentary it was oh, interesting it was beautiful and difficult i mean there really quick there was one discussion where like what happened was they had this camp that this camp could not exist today i'll tell you right now there's no way that the lawyers would let this happen it was differently disabled people and the counselors were all disabled extremely and but they had a couple talking who are now 50 years you know they're in their 60s now this is in the 70s and they and they both have cyst, uh, cerebral palsy mm. and the guy they got married they met at camp and they got married wow. and lived a life together and the guy says well you want to talk about the difference when i married her my mother said i, I guess you're going to marry her why couldn't you find a polio because polio was viewed as the least disabled Right. And there was a strata of that. And I went, oh, my God, I had no idea why, because so that's not lives. my experience. That's not yeah. your lived experience. That's right. right. That's right. And it speaks to the issue of hierarchy that I don't think we're all aware of, this hierarchy inside every group. Right. So, yeah. Dr. Helen, you, you refer to the lived experience versus the life experience. Is there, what's the reasoning for that term? I think in part because um, it, it really makes it stand out that this is what your life experience tends to be a general kind of oh, okay. life experience. But the lived experience means, for example, as a black male, mm-hmm. having a different lived experience from you because he has to teach his son what he not just how to drive, but what he has to do to keep himself safe right. is a different lived experience from you as a white male. And so it's really speaking to a much more personal statement than life experience, which we all resonate with, with having. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That, that is so powerful because that's another thing we watched in this course was black parents having a live conversation with their kids about that. And we, the white people on the call were saying, you know, we never had to have that conversation. But what I realized, I did. But I said, yeah, I talked to my sons about the police mm-hmm. and how to respect them so they don't get a ticket. Right. These families are having the conversation so they don't get killed. That's right. That's and that was even crazy. more impactful to me than having it or not to think I'm worried about them getting a ticket versus staying alive. Yeah. That's a different lived experience. Yeah, when I first so, talked to one of my friends about that, and he, he explained that it's like, they went, he had a cousin that came in from a different, you know, from a Northern state and jumped right up on the bar stool. And, you know, my friend was, you know, big eyed and was like, what are you doing? And, you know, he, he didn't understand the differences of down South versus up North and what was going on at that time in the late, I think that was late sixties. Yep. So, Dr. Helen, you talked about the three immutable forces. We talked about dominance, unconscious bias, and the degrees of difference. And then you said there's four permeable forces. Yes. And be, really quick, let me make sure I'm clear. I think what I'm hearing is because these first three are immutable, this is about awareness. And it's not about them going away. It's not eliminating them. It's, it's, this is really about self-awareness, self-management, et cetera. Correct. Absolutely correct. I'm really advocating them not going to go away. So you have a responsibility to understand them and then manage yourself around them. Um, And the permeable forces, I think we could do more with them if we fully understood the impact. The first one is affinity bias, and that is the propensity we all have to want to surround ourselves with people who make us comfortable, Mm -hmm. which belies the idea that you're going to hire somebody who makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> most of us don't do that, right? Yeah. We talk about wanting a devil's advocate on the team. But the truth is, we don't really. We want people to agree with us. It's not that comfortable when somebody keeps disagreeing. And so affinity bias tends to have us all hiring the same people, hiring in our own image. And um, again, affinity bias won't go away. What can go away, though, is if you ask yourself, honestly, who do you have an affinity with? And more importantly, 
who are you leaving out? So which groups are you not comfortable with? Which people on the team do you ignore? Uh, who do you not say good morning to? Uh, and so the challenge around affinity bias isn't to get rid of it. It's to ask yourself, who else can I bring in? Who else can I help feel included in the organization? Some of my research, as I said earlier, I have three online assessment tools, demonstrate that there's huge gaps in the perception of people in terms of inclusion. And the Gallup poll um, in 2019 said that uh, 65% of people are not engaged at work. And yeah. that's a shockingly high statistic, 15% of whom are defined by Gallup as sleeping on the job. Uh, probably not literally, but um, I, I contend that you can close that inclusion skills gap if you pay more attention to this issue. If you pay more attention to what do we have to do to, to make people feel more included. So affinity bias is one thing that all of us could do to say, you know what? The truth is, I'm not really comfortable with people with these accents from other countries. <laughs> but let me challenge myself to, to hire people. And I, I talk about it as having a lazy ear. Because those of us who only speak English tend to have a lazy ear. We do not want to have to try to hear you. And yet, if you build a relationship with somebody whose accent isn't yours, you, you find that you can hear them better. Now, what, the only thing that changed is that you decided you like them. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I have to tell you something. I, I, I just hope people hear what I'm about to share because I want a lot of people to hear it. Again, this course I'm taking, one thing they do is they have the people who are different and they have a conversation with our the rest of us, our cameras turned off. So we can see them, but they can't see us. So it's a creating as if we're not in the room, but we get to hear it. And they ask questions like, what do you never want to hear again mm -hmm. from, say, example, whites? And what do you want to hear? And one that was really interesting is a friend of mine, actually, from Mexico said, um, what I want is for people who come to my country to learn to speak more of my language and not expect me to know English. Yeah. And it's like, God, yeah. I mean, there's an, like, and I'll use the word arrogance to that. Absolutely. Of in the world. And the, the thing is, because I've traveled a lot internationally, the truth is that is how the world is. I, I feel bad. People will say, I'm sorry, I can't speak better English. No. I go, I'm in your country. Why? I'm like, why are you, why are you doing this? Right. It's not your responsibility. <laughs> it's not your responsibility. But if I go somewhere and say, I don't have to know the language, which is true. But the different question is, how do I interact with the people I will from a more respectful way would mean sure. I do learn the language. Yes. Um, so okay, the, so uh, we got affinity bias. What's yes. our next one? The second one is uh, assimilation. And assimilation is very mm. important to understand. Because it's what people who are not the dominant culture are doing to fit in. And it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's what women do to make sure that they're walking that fine line uh, between being assertive enough not to be written off and not too assertive where they get called, you know, the wow. B word and uh, being told they're too aggressive or told to tone it down. Uh, and so assimilation is... Um, African-Americans talk about it as code switching every day, that they come into work and they have, to, they have to behave and speak in ways that make their white colleagues comfortable. Hmm. People who are gay and lesbian do the same thing. Uh, and so it, it's, it's exhausting and it's often not seen by the dominant culture. It's only noticed when you make me uncomfortable because you hmm. haven't been code switching enough. And um, so assimilation requires, if we are really going to be inclusive, we have to try to figure out how to allow people to bring their best selves to the table and not just their assimilated self. Because if I'm spending some of my energy assimilating, I am not giving my best self to you. Yeah, good point. You know, it's interesting. This is such a, such a narrow issue, but a big issue. One of my friends here in Tampa, uh, he, he's, a, he's a man of color, and he was telling me that he came up through the corporate world his first three or four years in work. It was a real issue because they had a strict no facial hair policy. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And and now, by the way, I think that's ridiculous in the corporate. I think it's ridiculous. But beyond that, what he taught me was he said for me and for true for a lot of black men is that shaving is really hard on our face. Mm-hmm. Not like it's a little uncomfortable, but like literally for him, shaving his face created all sorts of rashes and everything else because of the nature of the hair. So they're saying this has nothing to do with you. It's applied to everybody, but at a hugely different impact. And so he had to, well, he ended up quitting over that. He said, I, I'm basically in pain all the time and no one seems to care. That was actually why he quit. I'm in pain all, no one seems to care, but I would have never thought about that. And so that wasn't an assimilation, but I, I've heard some of my friends who are uh, people of color saying, yeah, I have to do my hair differently. Mm-hmm. I have to, I have to wipe my hair right. because right. they're going, you know, that's, you know, that's too much big hair here. <laughs> you need to, so basically there are black women who straighten their hair. So they, they believe they have to do that to keep a job. Right. Yeah. I remember a, a client of mine, African-American male, and I was standing next to him when this happened. He was speaking to his white CEO and halfway through the conversation, he almost switched what he was saying midway, midway through the sentence because he could see that his CEO was getting uncomfortable. They were talking about race in the company, and he could see that he was getting uncomfortable. And so he, he softened what he was saying. And we talked about it afterwards. Said, How did that make you feel? He said, not good, Helen. He said, but you realize that you have to assimilate. You have to fit in in order to live, to fight another day, basically. So. So assimilation is a huge issue. It's kind of the other side of the coin from affinity bias. Uh, the third one is political correctness. Um, I, when I wrote my book, I, I thought, you know, maybe we've gone too far with political correctness because everybody's afraid to talk to each other. But now I've decided, no, it's all right. We need a little bit more of it. Um, <laughs> but I, I redefined it because I thought being PC just means being afraid to tell you what I'm thinking. So I redefine PC as polite consideration. So I, <laughs> there I think you go. That Great. If, if we are polite to each other, uh, yeah. if we're civilized to each other, if we're willing to be considerate of each other, then we can have meaningful conversations across difference. I, I honestly believe right now that, that we're losing civility. Yes. And, and, and that, that's a wider conversation than just DEI. But we're losing civility with each other, and we need to get it back. We're used to, you know, being able to lambast people on social media. So when we get in front of somebody, you know, what happens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's well, disturbing, but yeah, I mean, as somebody who used to laugh at at political correctness, um, I, I have now made a pretty big switch. You know, <laughs> primarily because of this podcast and being exposed to a lot more and different viewpoints helps me to understand, wow, you know, I have been so immersed in my own world view that I just don't understand how other people feel about what's going on. Right, right. Uh, And the fourth and last um, permeable force is a little bit more complicated because it's internalized oppression. And what I mean by that Mm. is that um, people take on the negative messages given to them by the dominant culture wow. and, and then sabotage themselves and each other. So, you know, women see other women as competitive um, because we feel threatened that, you know, if I'm the only woman in the C-suite, the truth is that's a badge of honor and I don't necessarily want other women to join me. Uh, and so there's, um, there's a whole lot of complexity around that. But it, when you internalize the negativity, you begin to believe the story that you're never going to make it. You're never going to be quite as good as the white men with their seats at the table in the C-suite. So. Well, I, um, I thank you for bringing that up because that's, an, again, another topic that is so rarely discussed. And it, to me, because this is, well, I guess my takeaway is this is so complex. <coughs> but, I, I, and I'm intentionally using the word but, complexity often makes things difficult to move the needle on. And so I think 
sometimes what the simplicity is, is understanding the layers that make it complex creates a little more simplicity of, so how do I do something different? Like me, like with the, um, the three immutable forces, it's, it's simplified to me to say, okay, I understand each of those a little bit. And these are things I need to pay attention to. This is about self-responsibility, self-management, self-awareness. I'm not going to get help by the world changing on these. These over here, I can actually move the needle on, but I still need to be intentional. And I think for me, it's all about finding those little situations and learn from each one. And Craig, who was it? One of our guests, I loved her phrase in this topic. She said, Oh, it was Jana. Know better, do better. Yeah. Not just know better, but also do better. It's not about figuring it all out, but each time you know better, are you going to do better the next time? Because and you, you don't now know beat better. yourself up for what you don't know. Right. 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 Yeah. So I guess the question I have, Dr. Helen, is um, like, I know we could go on for days with this because there's so much in here, but when you look at your inclusion complexity model you've really done i think a great job of explaining it i feel i've learned a lot but tell me tell us how do can a company use that in addressing their d and i initiatives mm-hmm. and i i hate saying that word because then it becomes just it's the initiative but we're going to stick with that for now right so so the, the several ways i mean obviously the easiest way to use it is to hire me and I'll help you through it. <laughs> well, and by the way, okay, so by the way, that, that, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but I'm like, I guess I'm saying, how do you use that in the work? Right. No, I understand. And I think that how you use it is by taking each of the component parts, the three immutable forces, and asking yourself, what's the impact? So let's talk as a leadership team about the issue of dominance, how we come across individually and collectively. And asking other people who are not part of the dominant culture to talk about, tell me what the environment is like for you and what you'd like to see us do differently. So if you were to unpack that model one factor at a time and, be, and have the courage to, to encourage conversation about it, then you will begin to uh, create an, a more inclusive environment. Because for me, the bottom line is inclusion matters. And if we're not willing to ask ourselves, what do I mean by that? And how do I unpack it? And do you agree with me that inclusion matters? I once, I once interviewed a senior manager and he said to me, he said, my women are happy. And I looked at him and I said, how do you know? I said, have you asked them? He said, no, well, no, but they don't complain. <laughs> and I said, well, you might want to go and ask them. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that the way that to work with this model is to really have the courage to be in conversation. Well, it seems like anytime you would, you would talk about things like this and ask people to share their perspectives, there has to be a level of trust in there. How do you establish that at the outset that, let's, let's call it, uh, the people in power are, willing to, are not only willing to listen, but actually want to hear? Right. So, so it's a great question, Craig, because people can tell the difference. Believe me when I say that women, people of color, people who are gay and lesbian, et cetera, we are fine-tuned to know when we're getting lip service yeah. and when we have sincerity. And so if you, as a white male leader, are sincere, there's two things that should happen. One is that you will work with other white men and be in conversation with them about how to make a difference. And that when you lean in to talk to us, that you are genuinely interested, that you're creating an environment of trust, mm-hmm. and that we will see you make changes, not just individually, but collectively and systemically in the organization. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and one of the easy techniques that I encourage leaders to do is go around the room in your leadership team and ask people for their opinion individually. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, and don't interrupt them. Mm. And if you do that at least once every week or so, what you're doing is subliminally sending a message that everyone's voice is important. Okay, very good. So uh, do you encourage the senior leader in a room to go first? No. 
encourage yeah, so them to not to set the to tone <coughs> sorry not not necessarily i encourage the senior leader to be open about what they're asking mm -hmm. and to say i'm really interested in hearing from you um, now i mean it depends on the topic you could set the tone it's not a hard and fast rule but i think it's good because the minute you set the tone you've set an expectation for what you want people to say back to mm -hmm. you okay and so yeah, that, that's like so many little things is one of the things that I work <laughs> on around this, especially with women, because I'm, I'm now aware of it's a cultural piece, not necessarily my, it's not me, my own personal decision. It's a cultural piece that men typically outspeak women. That's yeah. a reality. And it is more challenging for women to bring their voice in. And I think in the past, I would have said, well, just speak up. Now I pay attention in lots of situations to, I don't want to go first. I'm going to sit and allow silence and give space for others and invite them and just be really intentional about how I can dominate and know that some of it's my extroversion. Some of it is I'm a quicker processor than some people, but it's part of it is it's in the water. It's in the system that it's okay for me to talk the whole meeting, but it's not okay for you to talk the whole meeting. <laughs> Because if I do, the worst is, boy, Jeff had a lot to say today. If you do, it's huh, those women. Never shut up. Right? And and that's just, it's such, I, I, I like, what I like about the change part is it gets back to something I talk about a lot, which is thin slicing. I got to find the thin slice, which is what's that little behavior of difference? And in that meeting, did I stay silent longer than normal, even though I had something to say? And it's actually been funny to watch because in this class I'm taking, there's a lot of men, and they said this the first day, be aware of your nature to talk more than the women and, and, and also over others who might just be different than you. And I'm like observing how many times I want to say something, but I choose not to. Oh, come on, Jeff. Let's get real. You always want to say something. <laughs> I always do. But I, I'm really intentionally not. And yeah. then I'm watching some people do it constantly. And I'm thinking, I'm not the only one that's seeing this. Yeah, right. Like right. this white male always, like every every single topic, he's going to have a speak. Yeah, yep. go, jumps oh, in, right? Huh. I read once, and I don't know where, but I read once that women unconsciously calculate the airtime and the number of people in the room. So if there's a one-hour meeting and there's 10 people in the room, Without being consciously aware of it, women are like, okay, so I should only be taking up one-tenth of the airtime in here. Wow. And, and they don't, women, women don't always ask for permission to speak, but they will wait for a space to speak, and you'll see some women do this, and their hand is only going half up. They're not like this, right. and they don't jump in very often. And so if you take up, as this man you were talking about, 30% of the airtime, then I leave thinking, what a hog. Yeah. No, he never stopped. Wow, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Helen, this has not only been fascinating, but it's been very enriching for me, and I know for our listeners. I really, and I'm glad we went deep in the um, model. Yeah. This is really, it's really rich. Uh, I'm grateful for you being here. We always want to make sure our guests have a time, uh, opportunity to talk about things going on in their world or business. Is there anything particular you want to promote today? Well, I think I would just say that, um, you know, my book, The Illusion of Inclusion, sets out the model and uh, my uh, online assessment tools. You can find information about them on my website, humanfacets.com. And also you can contact me through the website or Dr. Helen Turnbull at humanfacets.com. Oh, so the, that was my second question. Best way to reach you is through the website or your email. My email is Dr. Helen Turnbull at humanfacets.com. Right. And we always wrap up with a couple of questions, and I'm really curious about what we're going to hear. So it, the first question is, I'm going to go with, the, I think, the easier one. What's the one book people need to read? Hmm. So for me, my, one of my favorite books in this subject area is, it was written by a colleague of mine who's since passed, Alan Johnson, and he wrote Privilege, Power, and Difference. 
And it's an exceptionally well-written book. It's easy to read. It totally describes the dynamics that we've been discussing. Privilege, Power, and Difference by Alan Johnson. Right. Boy, that, that must be synchronicity because the class I'm taking right now, the course, is called Unpacking Power, Privilege, and Difference. <laughs> Uh, and so the last question is, you have the opportunity to have dinner with someone living. Who do you want to have dinner with, and what's the one question you're going to ask them? Um, I want to have dinner with President Barack Obama. And my one question that I would ask him is, what do you wish you had said to Mitch McConnell that would have made a difference and improved your agenda? Ooh, so that's a very specific question. I'm guessing you've thought about this one. I, <laughs> I gave it a lot of thought, yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Howland. Thank you so much for being here. And yes. Thank you, most importantly, for the work that you do in the world because it matters and it, it's making a difference even if you don't see it every day. Thank you, Jeff Craig. It was delightful to spend time with you today. Thank you. Yeah. Great to have you. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.